Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, despite a bit of excitement with reporting season, markets are pretty directionless at the moment, and we're finding investors are really struggling to get a feel for whether they should be buying the dip if they see one or batting down the hatches. We're really getting a strong, strong feedback from our investors that they don't know where to go right now. But lackluster markets, they're not unusual. We've had so much excitement in the last couple of years, people have probably forgotten that it can get boring sometimes. So what do you do in this environment? Today, I'm speaking with Henry Jennings from Marcus Today, who's in bull markets and bear markets and has an idea what to do when it looks like nothing much is happening. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gemma. Oh, I love the way you uh, you talk about these things because you've seen them before. <laughs> what are you seeing in this market? Does it feel really blah to you? That's what our investors are telling us. It's really blah. They're not enjoying it. Or is there something going on under the surface that we're not seeing? I I think there's, I mean, there's the great thing about markets, and I've been doing this for an awful long time, too many years that, that I care to mention. But the great thing about markets is there's always something going on. And if you if you kind of ignore the index level, where we're not seeing a great deal of interest, although we have bounced off that sort of 64, whatever it was back in the dim, dark days of June, and we're up to 7,000. So that's not a bad performance uh, in sort of six weeks, seven weeks. So that's pretty good. But there's always something going on. There's always stocks. And this is really becoming, I guess, a bit more of a stock picker's market. Some of the themes that we saw of um, earlier this year, uh, pre-June or, or even pre-Easter, when the market was sort of on a rock and roll, are coming back into fashion. I'm thinking of lithium as one of those. And the resource sector has bounced back quite nicely. And then, and then you add in something like we saw uh, in recent days with BHP bidding for Oz Minerals. You know, that, that's a big, big bid. Uh, that's a big statement of intent. So that there's always something going on, which is why it's, you know, markets are fascinating, but it does I think, come down to a stock picker's market. There's not that sort of throw the money at the wall and all of it sticks. You kind of, you have to be a bit more selective, I think, now in where you're throwing the money because uh, some of it will just drop to the floor and you'll just end up with a mess at your feet um, as opposed to sticking to the wall. But there's always something going on, Gemma. It's, that's why it's so wonderful, the market. I think you're right. Uh, and I love the fact that you clearly get so much joy out of it. Although I think we've made this comment before, more than half of our investors now have joined the market in the last two and a half years since COVID. And so they have, at least for the first two and a half, sorry, year and a half of their experience of investing, you know, just throw it at the wall, right? And it does yeah, stick, yeah. everything sticks. So also I wonder to what extent that experience doesn't really set you up for a market where there's no clear direction, those big swings are not happening. Do you feel that this sort of period where the market's just trundling along without any clear path is more normal than perhaps those people might expect? Um, yes, I think it is. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years is an extraordinary time. Uh, we have a whole generation of fund managers, let's face it, who have never seen interest rates rise. Now, they've, they've come out of school or uni or wherever at uh, 23, 24, 25, and they've been in the market five, six, seven years, and they have never seen inflation. 
They've never seen interest rates rise. Uh, it's all been downhill. And then, of course, we've had massive amounts of stimulus through the COVID crisis, uh, which has just been free money, which we, you know, we've taken that and created 19,500 cryptocurrencies on the back of all that money being splashed around, which I find extraordinary. So we have not had a normal time. This is not normal. The last two or three years is definitely not a normal time in the market. You know, when I started out in the market, if a stock moved a penny, as it was in those days, so I think it wasn't even decimal uh, in, in the UK. If a stock moved, you know, a penny, then uh, that was a big move. You know, now now we're used to some of the volatility and some of the stocks has been extraordinary. You know, even some of the out of favour sectors like buy now pay later, we had zip down at forty odd cents and hitting a dollar sixty within two or three weeks. You know, it, it has been extraordinary. So there's certainly plenty going on. Uh, for the adrenaline junkies. And I think the last two and a half years, we've seen, uh, you know, as you say, a lot of new investors join the market. A lot of investors have been coaxed into uh, the ETF is the answer to all their woes. You just buy an ETF and they always go up, don't they? Uh, so therefore, I'm going to get wealthier and it's long-term investing, dollar cost averaging. And of course, it has been much harder, especially since that uh, number we came out with in June for uh, the CPI in the US, which just absolutely sideswiped the market to some extent. You know, 9.1% inflation in the US and heading higher uh, really did sideswipe the market in the US, which then, of course, um, sort of cascaded into our own market because of uh, tax loss and various other issues uh, surrounding June and, of course, our own inflation problems. So it's not been an easy time for, for new investors, that's for sure. But it's not... Um, it hasn't been normal for, for some years, but um, you know, I think people just have to get used to uh, stock picking, doing more work, to be honest, because it's, you know, when it does get hard like this and you are looking at individual stocks rather than just chucking the money at the wall, you do have to do a little more work, you do have to do a little more research, you may need to get a little more educated about things. And, you know, no one said the money was going to be free forever. You know, if, if you go out into the wide world, you've got to work for a living. And the same applies to the stock market. Sometimes you just have to work a little harder, I'm afraid. It's not um, going to be handed to you on a plate like it has been for the last two, three years, perhaps. I think that's so interesting. I also have been around long enough to see rates much higher. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I tell you what, I find inflation fascinating because we learned about inflation at university as if it was you know, yeah. one of the key pillars, right? We, there was so much. I did four years of economics plus honours. Yeah. The, the amount of hours I dedicated to inflation, which never, ever came to pass yeah. in the subsequent yeah. two decades, was extraordinary. Like, yeah. we are just talking about it and talking about it and talking about it as if it's such a big issue. And then, you know, it barely bounced above 2.5% for the next 20 <laughs> years. I felt like I'd learned all of this for nothing. And yeah. then suddenly it's back. And people are trying to process what that means. But it, but this, you see, I, I guess from your experience, you know, the, the, the lecturers at your university uh, would have been somewhat older than you. So they would remember inflation. I remember inflation, you know, back when I started my career back in London in the 80s. You know, we had inflation. There was no question there was inflation. Maggie Thatcher was in. She just got power in 1979 where um, unfortunately for me, that's the year that I started work uh, in stockbroking. So that's a long, long time ago now. 
Um, but we definitely had inflation. And there was a fixation in those days with something that we don't even talk about these days, which was money supply, the amount of money, M2 and M3. That was the, the whole focal point of economists, what the money supply was. If, if you looked at the money supply now, it would freak all those people out because central banks have just printed so much money. And, and there's so much money coming into the economy, not only here, but in the US. And even overnight uh, in the US or recently, the Biden, what's it? It's not the Build Back Better plan anymore because they renamed it the Inflation Reduction Bill or Act, um, is again more stimulus from governments. You've got the Federal Reserve pulling stimulus out and the, and the, uh, the US government putting money back in. But inflation, it, uh, the other issue with inflation this time around is it's different. It's kind of a different kind of inflation. And it's very much, I think, um, based on the oil price. Now, everything we touch, everything we do involves some sort of transportation, whether it's your food at the Woolies. You know, it's got to be delivered, even if you, you know, if you order in, if you, you know, your Uber Eats is is based, you know, that those costs include a fuel cost. Your Domino's pizza gets more expensive because of delivery costs. So we have seen a big increase, I think, in inflationary pressures because of that oil price, which now, of course, is coming off. In the US, for instance, their gallon of fuel, uh, which was at crisis levels, uh, was $5 a gallon. It's now sort of $4.10 US a gallon. So that's a big, big difference. And this time around, you know, inflation is not being driven by demand. It's being driven a lot by lack of supply. The war in Ukraine, which I think is going to rumble on for such a long time, we're all going to unfortunately and tragically get kind of um, blasé to it. It'll just become background noise. It already has to some extent, uh, unless there's sort of some sort of nuclear thing. But um, I think at the end of the day, this, this inflation is different to the 80s. And we're not seeing in Australia, at least, the, the wage growth um, demands and that spiralling inflation. And I think the oil price coming off will take a lot of the sting out of it, hopefully. But um, certainly, you know, these are these are interesting times, Gemma, I have to say. And yeah, looking back in, into history gives you a guide as to what could and may happen, you know, recessions, etc. But um, yeah, this time, as they say, it is different. It is quite fascinating, you know, we've been not talking about inflation for two decades. Yeah. Maybe I'm exaggerating with two decades, but it's been no, really you're not, long you're not. Time. It's, it's, you know, the, the central banks came up with this number as well. That was what I always found fascinating. The central banks around the world sort of came up with this number, well, we're going to go 2 to 3%. And there wasn't too much kind of logic in that. It was a bit Goldilocks. You know, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. We need a bit of inflation because we like to see a little bit of wage growth. Like to see a little bit of, um, you know, inflating our way out of uh, the odd crisis or whatever. Um, so that that's been good. But I don't know really where they came up with two to three percent. And they struggled as Japan has for decades to get anywhere close to it. And then of course the genie was out of the bottle. And off we went to the races with inflation in the US at 9.1%. Europe is 86 Here we are with our own inflation heading towards, you know, in the sevens, I suspect. We, luckily, we don't do it every month. Uh, we do it quarterly. But, um, yeah, it's, um, it is bizarre how long we've spent focusing on 2 to 3%. That's okay. And interest rates, you know, we have $17 trillion of negative yielding cash sitting in banks. $17 trillion. 
um, negative interest rates. It's, it's, it was bizarre. It was bizarre. And I think normality is returning, but unfortunately with normality comes a dislocation, a disruption, and that's kind of, I guess, what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, it feels a bit cruel to say the dislocation had to come because the circumstances were so extraordinary, but because they went yeah. on for so long, perhaps people didn't feel they were extraordinary. And you certainly do get people for whom, they, as you say, their entire career has been during a period of falling rates, super low inflation and tons of stimulus. So yeah. what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And, and you know, that the people have built billion dollar fund management businesses on the back of it. You know, you, if you've only got to go hard pretty early um, and uh, take the big punts and throw kind of some of the risk control out of the window and you can build a massive business that is so massive by the time the bad times come, you've already made your money. You've made off like a bandit. You're a billionaire or whatever. You've got this fund up and running that has hundred. I'm not throwing any names around, but you no, know, it's it's not been a bad time to be in the investment business the last five, ten years since the GFC. You've kind of cleaned up. You've made a point there, actually, that I think is worth making because again, certainly the funds management industry and a lot of pundits, we talk about time in the market. It's not timing the market, it's time in the market. But the very clearly points where being in the market is much better than not being in the market. And periods where not being in the market is a lot better than being in the market. And sometimes they're not that hard to pick, which it it feels... uh, feels wrong to say it. It's not a popular thing to say. The popular wisdom is it's just time in the market. And as you say, you buy your ETFs with your dollar cost averaging and so on. And I think for a lot of people, that's a brilliant strategy. That mm. is what you should be doing, particularly if you're young, you've got a super long time frame, and you don't have a huge amount of money to lose either. So you want to just accumulate over time, do that, right? It's a really great, simple strategy because you've got the time to ride out the volatility and all those sorts of things. But if you were actively managing a portfolio, I think that sort of received wisdom that just being in the market is not necessarily as wise as some might suggest. Yeah. I mean, it it never ceases to amaze me that a fund manager will will be in the newspapers and say, oh, you know, we're very nervous about the market. We're very cautious. We think there's a a precipitous moment in the market and we've heavily invested in cash at the moment. We've got 10%. And you think, you're scratching your head and thinking, so you think the world's coming to an end and yet you're 10% in cash or 20%. You know, it it never ceases to amaze me. Um, I guess at the end of the day, if you give your money to a fund manager, you're not there for a haircut. You want them to invest your money. Uh, If you wanted to be in cash and you, you were worried about the market, then you wouldn't give your money to a fund manager. But there are certainly times when it is right to be a lot more cashed up than that, or at least have, if your mandate is to always be fully invested or at least 80% invested or whatever, for that 80% to be in very, very defensive assets, the Telstras of this world. So, you know, there is obviously a time for that. It's it's interesting, actually, we, you talk about dollar cost averaging, which is a very, very valid strategy. But then you say to people, oh, what do you think about averaging down your position in something that's losing money? And they say, oh, you should never never average down. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that just a different way of saying dollar cost averaging? I know that it tends to be in, in indices and things like that, but dollar cost averaging is very, very similar 
to averaging down if the market's going down as well. Um, it's a bit more disciplined in some respects, but it's nonetheless you are averaging down on something that you've paid more for at some stage. So it's um, it's kind of one of those strange contradictions that everyone's quite happy to say, you know, dollar cost averaging is a wonderful thing because it smooths out the volatility, yet we're not very keen as an industry say, oh, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't average down in a position because, you know, that's, um, that's really not beneficial to your wealth. So strange the Can way you can we call it buying things. the dip? Should we call it that instead? Well, you could call it buy the dip. Well, we've had we've had the we've had the buy the dip, the BTD uh, that uh, everybody's been very very keen on buy the dip, and it has worked. As has you know the Federal Reserve put that the Fed will always have your back, and if things get really bad, the Fed will uh, make it all right. If you come crying to mummy and you've grazed your knee, the Fed will um, kiss it better, and you will not have that problem. Uh, and to some extent, I guess we, we've seen that in the last few weeks or the last month where the Federal Reserve has become less hawkish after the US market fell around 20% uh, in in places. So the Fed has become a little less hawkish and uh, has sort of, they've talked about the pivot. I don't think they've really pivoted because, um, you know, the likes of um, San Fran uh, Daily has said, you know, inflation is our number one priority. We're going to crush it. So they haven't really pivoted, but some of the language has been toned down a little bit. Some of the, um, you know, the, the messaging has become a little more um, conciliatory with the market. That's for sure. It's an interesting time, isn't it? <laughs> so as it you is, say, like you, things have worked. They just don't always work, right? Well, they, they, it's um, there's a, a famous uh, quote from one of my favourite movies, Anchorman. Um, <laughs> Which is, which is certainly one, one of my favourite movies, Stay Classy, San Diego, um, is, uh, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a great quote. At the end of the day, you know, we have this sort of um, ingrained market bias, the Fed's going to save us, that you buy the dip, you know, that interest rates won't go up, inflation isn't a problem. And that's the kind of received wisdom in the market, certainly for the one generation of investors. And of course, that can be challenged. It can change and um, things do change. And we've, we've seen that with COVID. We've seen that with stimulus. We've seen that with interest rates going up. And it, as you say, it's interesting times. And it, it does present opportunities. That's the great thing. Uh, there are opportunities out there. And you know, without this volatility, you wouldn't have the chance to make extraordinary gains because at the end of the day, it can't possibly keep going up and up and up and up at some stage you have to shake the trees and the weak shareholders fall away and those that are more patient uh, maybe have done some more work uh, will take up that slack and do very well over the longer term as you know when you look back at the gfc warren buffett made an absolute truckload of money buying the likes of goldman sachs etc when when the world was going to custard so that this this is these opportunities don't always happen um, regularly enough, but when they do, you need to take advantage of them. So let's say I have been patient and we're waiting. We were waiting for this moment, right, for the market to get boring and for some of the heat to come out of the sectors that were a bit too hot. And yeah. I haven't been dollar cost averaging, so I've got cost. I've got cash on the sidelines. I'm waiting for an opportunity. Where are we looking in this environment? Where where are the areas where they're not going to get crushed by rising rates. Inflation's not going to hurt too badly. 
I, I think, you know, you've got to look, and at the moment we're seeing this, that the businesses are able to pass on the inflation that's within the business. And I think you've got to look at those businesses that have pricing power and also those businesses that have become part of our DNA, that have become so embedded in our souls that we as consumers of, of whatever it may be cannot do without them. Now, if, if you took away someone's mobile phone, you know, they would have a connection. They, they can't, we cannot do without our umbilical cord to our mobile phone. And you know, we've seen it with Telstra. You know, I, I was doing a, a course for some school kids last night and I was trying to explain PEs to them and how you know, high PEs tended to show that it was a growth stock. And low PEs would suggest that maybe it was a bit dull and it was a bit boring and, and stayed, but a bit safer and more conservative and maybe for more income-style investors. And I looked at the PE for Telstra, which currently is 24. And then you look at the PE for the, the Metas and the Googles of this world, and they are half that. Now, you can't tell me that Telstra is a growth stock given the environment that it lives in. I mean, it's a very defensive stock, which is maybe why it's only 24 PE. But I think, you know, that, that does highlight really how far some of these US technology stocks have come back. And certainly for, for retail investors who are familiar with these names, that could provide a, a pretty good opportunity. Of course, we don't have the same breadth or range of technology stocks here. But certainly some of these tech stocks that, especially ones that are so embedded in our lives, and, and Telstra obviously is deeply embedded in a lot of people's lives through mobile phones, um, et cetera, the NBN, uh, 5G, which was always the big tantalizing sort of promised land for Telstra, which is now coming to fruition. You know, the, these, these companies have pricing power. You, you can't say, oh, well, I'll just do without my phone. It's getting too expensive. You'll pay whatever. Um, so I think as investors, we need to open our eyes and examine our own spending habits and go, you know what? Well, if things get tough, what am I going to cut back on? I might cut down my streaming services. So maybe Nine Entertainment with Stan uh, is a bit more vulnerable. I may cut back on uh, consumer discretionary spending. I may not pop into um, to JB Hi-Fi quite so often. I might not buy that new dishwasher from the good guys. So you have to, I think, look at what companies in your life have that pricing power that you can't do without. And you look at you know, the boring ones like the Woolies, the Coles, you know, some people would suggest that Dan Murphy's is an essential uh, supplier to uh, to most people. And, uh, you know, Endeavor Group is another one that you think would be relatively recession-proof in some respects. Um, you know, maybe even Treasury Wine Estates if you've had a bad day. But certainly, I think if you look around for those companies that provide a service that you can't do without or that you don't notice, you know, a lot of these companies have moved to the SaaS model where you're paying... Know, streaming services, you're paying Amazon Prime or whatever. You put it, I put it up a dollar, you don't even notice. You know, you're paying eight, nine dollars or whatever it is a month. It's it's a cappuccino and a half. So it's it's those sorts of stocks, I think, that have the pricing power. I also think, you know, if you look at the market at the moment, I think resources offer a an interesting proposition for those willing to take a, a much longer term view and, and see through a possible recession. Globally, resource companies have underinvested for whatever reason, whether it's just because they've been very generous for shareholders or whether there's been environmental 
problems that they've had in terms of getting mines up and running. And it takes a long time, a lot of commitment to do that. And I think the resources sector is possibly one of the most interesting ones, especially as they, they have raised a lot of money. They have got very, very strong balance sheets to the extent that BHP and Fortescue and Rio have enormous historic yields because of their generosity, way higher than the banks. You know, they and they're trading on, on PEs that are half the banks in some in some cases. You know, Commonwealth Bank is trading on a 1920 PE, whereas BHP is on an eight times PE. So in that respect, they look quite cheap. They're stuffed full of money. They've got tons of it. You know, BHP is just bid for Oz Minerals. It's it's won't even touch the sides. Um, so I think, you know, the, the strong will take out the weak if we do see a recession. I think that's starting to happen in the gold sector. And it, obviously it's happening with copper, with BHP stating its intent with um, with Oz Minerals. I think it's going to happen in the lithium sector as well. Um, and we may even see it with the oil and gas sector. Again, these guys are stuffed full of money. They've enjoyed some pretty good times in recent years. And they have rewarded shareholders handsomely. And they haven't bought anything dopey, which is usually what happens with resource companies. You know, BHP bought Petrohawk years ago. What was it, 40 billion bucks or something silly? And Rio's had a fair go at a few things over the years that have turned out to be stummers. So, um, you know, it's I think there's some brilliant opportunities in some of these bombed-out resource stocks. Oh, I love all of that. And the way you describe it is brilliant um, and entertaining, which is very important. <laughs> I uh, try. When we uh, when we talk to our investors and when I look at what they're doing, resources, I mean, they're up to their eyeballs of resources anyway, if I'm honest yeah. with you. It's all resources and the lithium companies you've been talking about. That's the kind of where investors and traders who are still active and to be frank, at the moment, we've seen a real drift away of the newer and less experienced investors and traders. And it's the guys who've been around a long time, the ones who know how to do the work or at least understand what they're looking at, because I've seen it before, yeah. who are very comfortable in this market. And the trade sizes are huge, actually, by yeah. his, by historical kind of records. Like they're quite massive because people are just repositioning in this environment. The other thing is always banks, always yeah. banks. Admittedly, they have drifted down a bit, right? We're not seeing a lot of interest in terms of acquiring more. Part of the reason is they already bought an absolute ton during yeah. COVID and post-COVID, so they are, again, up to their eyeballs in financials, yeah. don't necessarily need any more. Have you got any thoughts on that sector? Um, well, the, the banks are just a massive money-printing business, the big four, it's just you pull the handle and money drops out the bottom. Let's face it, even, you know, there was a minor blip with the, the Hainer Oil Commission and, and some of the changes to, uh, you know, Bar Basel 2, 3, 4, 5 or Basel Brush or whatever. You know, there were some minor changes to, um, to, to make the balance sheet stronger, more resilient to a GFD style uh, issue. Um, but they are just machines. They make $28, $30 billion between the four of them consistently each and every year. Okay, some years they may be up 4 or 5%. Some years they may be down 4 and 5%. But And they jostle for position, you know, behind CBA, which is acknowledged as the market leader and commands a premium. Their payout ratios are 75%. And people say to me, so which bank should I buy? And you think, well, you know what? If you bank with Westpac, get your, get your own back buy some Westpac shares because 
75% of the profits is going to come back to you as a fully frank dividend. If you bank with NABs, same applies. Um, at least you're getting something back for the fees you're paying. But they are just behemoths of, of money printing machines. And no matter, you know, they've had um, competition from buy now, pay later. They've had fintechs trying to nibble at their heels, but they just go on. They are just, it's a bit like the um, the bad guy in, in Terminator, the cop. He, they just keep coming, no matter what you do to disrupt them, no matter how many bullets you put through them, they just keep on coming because they are such uh, an, a, a massive part of our economy. You know, we are an economy built on a, on a resource base, being the lucky country, and, and, you know, we then bank that money, those profits, and we have superannuation that ensures that we save. You know, the, the banks are just unstoppable to some extent and it's really just a question of what price you pay for them and sometimes you know there are things that come along which disrupt the banks like the royal commission uh, which gave investors a, a, an opportunity or there are problems in terms of housing and that of course is one of the issues that the banks will face in the next few years it hasn't manifested as yet because a lot of the new investors in housing new homeowners have fixed their mortgages but, you know, the RBA, Phil Lowe said, knock yourselves out, guys. We're not raising rates till 2024. Borrow as much as you can. That, that is potentially going to come home to bite the banks if they're not careful. And there will be a, an issue of managing that uh, going forward. But, you know, they may have the odd blip down if we see housing continuing to fall. But at the end of the day, they'll be back. They'll be making 28 to $30 billion in profit between the four of them. Um, bit of jostling, who's the best, but it's a machine and you just pick a price that you're happy with and um, add to it over time on any weakness, I think. I am most definitely not describing the banks <laughs> as the bad guy from Terminator in the blurb for this podcast. Not unless, not unless I want our compliance guys to come after me in a big way. That is so <laughs> funny. <laughs> Is that, I assume you mean it as a compliment. They're, I, they're I, very I, resilient. I, I, Should we I call do, them that? I, I do mean it as a compliment that they are very resilient. No matter what you do, that they, they keep coming and they, you know, they just go back to being what they were before, um, with some minor changes, obviously. But ultimately, it's you know, they made thirty billion dollars before the Royal Commission in profits, and now we're back to pretty much where we were all those years ago um, when we had the Royal Commission. So, you know, and, and the. COVID and all the other problems they've been thrown at, you know, here we are back at $28, $30 billion of profits. It's extraordinary. I will say a lot of uh, NAB trade customers hold NAB shares. It is The correlation is extremely high. Yeah. So clearly yeah. uh, our investors take exactly the view you pointed out, which is, you know, yeah. if you're going to uh, pay for the service, feel free to make some money out of the, uh, yeah. the provider of that service at the same time. It's, it's you know, it's like owning, uh, owning Transurban. If you're doing a lot of commuting on a lot of tollways, every time that book goes, when you pass under the, the toll booth and the costs go up, that's a fantastic stock. Transit, I think it's the ultimate technology stock, to be honest, because it's got a, 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 a long life platform, which requires not that much investment, to be honest, because they haven't filled in the potholes a lot of the time, but they've got a long life asset, monopoly position, and it is guaranteed by the government that they get inflation-proof increases in the tolls. Whether, whether inflation's there or not, they still get 
a, a decent increase every year and nobody notices it anymore because it's it's just so inbuilt into your life. It just goes boop. Every time you go past, it goes boop. And you don't look at the statement. You just know that you paid $5.36 or whatever it is. It's, it's such a great stock. Um, you know, they can and every dollar that when they go up, it just drops through to the bottom line. It's the ultimate platform. You know, it's what you want in a technology stock so that you don't have to do any sales. There's no sales involved in, in Transurban and the toll roads. You just it's just there. It's you know, it's like Microsoft Office. There's no you don't have to sell it to anybody. You just get it and it costs you. And it's just every year they might put the price up. It's it's brilliant. It's a great business. Transurban, not dissimilar to a technology platform in that respect. I, I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone describe Transurban as a technology platform, but I do agree <laughs> with your Microsoft analogy because they charge me like $130 a year. Yeah. And every now yeah. and then I look at my credit card statement, I'm like, what the hell? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh that's yeah. what that is, Microsoft. Yeah. I can't delete it. Got to use no, it, right? I, you know, and I, the same with you know with Apple. I've got you know Apple storage of one gig or whatever, and I, it charges me a dollar or something or two dollars a month. And every mm-hmm. every month you get this email saying invoice. You're looking at it, go, oh, I should really cancel that. And you think, well, now I've got all this stuff on the cloud. <laughs> I can't cancel it. <laughs> you, you probably know, don't I've know how to get out of the if cloud. I put it up to three bucks. I'd, it would just you know it would, you'd still do it. Same as Transurban. If if they put the um, the toll up to you know, put it up another dollar across the board, which they do obviously every quarter uh, with inflation or, or their mandated minimum. You know, you don't say, oh, I tell you what, I'm going to drive round it. I'm not going to go on the M2 today. I'm going to skirt round it because they made that really difficult. And if you want to sacrifice another hour of your life and sit in traffic, you think, you know what? I'll just go with the booking. I'll just go to the transit. I'll go to the M2. It's just easier. <laughs> and, you know, and the government even makes it, you know, I was traveling home last night from the city and my friend who works in the city said, you know, if you spend a certain amount on uh, tolls, your rego's free. So the government's even encouraging you to spend more on the tolls. It's, it's an enormously brilliant business model. Yes unless you're a regular consumer, in which case you may not like it, which does no. seem to be the case. I was thinking about it when you were talking about the banks as well. Uh, yeah. People really hate them making money unless they are investors, in which case they love them making money. Yeah. It's, uh, it's exactly the same with toll roads. You, you think if they're making $30 billion a year in profits, they're making $1,000 out of each and every one of us a year profit. Yeah, wow. I don't know how they're getting 1000 out of me because I don't see <laughs> but, but they You don't have a mortgage would be my guess. Um, I do. Oh, um, that'll that, be not how. A, not a very big one, but yeah, but that, that's that's um, that's part of it, I'm sure. But now, a thousand dollars for every every man, woman, and child in Australia. In fact, it's more than that. My maths is you know twenty five <laughs> twenty five million dollars. So was it was about twenty six or twenty seven, aren't we? But anyway, yeah. Well, any given day. My next question was going to be, what advice can you give investors who are concerned about investing in the current environment? Because we've been hearing this concern all the time. I mean, you've already given them an absolute ton of ideas. So if that's not, that's not enough, maybe sort of a more thematic thought for people. How do you, how do you broach investing when it's not COVID anymore? You're not buying at a 30% discount. It's only come off a little bit. You know, the headwinds are very apparent. What do you do? Well, I, I think, you know, it's it's like any business or any job. Um, there are some times when uh, it appears easy 
And those are times when you should maximize it. And there's other times when it gets harder. And when it gets harder, you need to, I think, you, you just have to work harder at it. You know, it's, it's something that, um, you know, you, people can get lazy about. You know, you get a tip from hot copper or you get, you know, your mate in the, in the pub tells you to buy this and you buy it and you make some money and you think, well, that's easy. Let's do, this, do that again. And that can happen and that can work in markets that we've seen. But when it gets trickier, you have to just work harder. I, I write in the newsletter sometimes, you know, it's a bit like driving a, a Formula One car. You need to know when to go fast in the straights and put your foot down. And then you need to know also when the chicanes are coming up because that's when you've got to be more careful and they require a lot more concentration. When you're flying along the straight, you can have a look around, you can wave at the girls in the crowd, you know, you can have a look at the pit lane, all that sort of stuff. And it, it appears very easy. You arrest the car. It doesn't require an awful lot of concentration. But when you start to get into the corners and the chicanes, you need to work harder. And I think, you know, we, human beings tend to, you know, we tend to be a little bit lazy sometimes, and especially if you've had it too good for too long. And bear markets or markets that are going sideways, I, I think we're in a market that's probably going sideways for a little while as we sort of lick our wounds, consolidate after the falls in, in earlier this year, same in the U.S., I think you just have to work harder. You have to use it as an education. You have to try and learn the lessons uh, that we saw in, uh, in in June and that you have to, you know, get educated and work harder. Know your stocks better. Uh, think outside the box a little bit. Think about, you know, we've talked Transurban as a technology stock. I, I suspect that I would be the only person in the market that would consider Transurban a technology stock. But it's you know, it's no different to building a platform and charging a, a fee, a small fee, every time someone uses your service. And the fact that it's a road instead of a Microsoft platform or a or a you know whatever it would be, or a Facebook or a Meta or something, is is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned. It's it's still a platform. So I think we just have to be harder working. Because it, it is work. I mean, making money, the, the, there's, a, there's a verb there, making. And, and to make something requires energy, dedication, skill, knowledge, um, experience to make something. It, just, you know, it doesn't just fall out of the air. And it has done, I think, for the last two or three years for some. And I think those days are gone and you have to work at it. I think that's a very... Very reasonable assessment of where we are. Henry, you often provide commentary in the media. Marcus today is a great source of broader commentary and specific commentary. Where can people go to find out more about you guys and what you're thinking? Uh, you can go to marcustoday.com.au and sign up for a trial if you haven't yet uh, joined our wonderful community. And uh, we'd love to have you on board. It's always great to have new members. And we do try... Um, and part of our gig and part of our sort of mantra is to educate people about the market. And we tend to try and do it. Uh, one of our members called it education through osmosis. Um, I'm not sure if that's the thing, but we, we try and educate people about uh, the stock market because uh, both Marcus and I have been around since a long, long time. You know, as I say, I started in 79. So we do try and uh, educate people about what has happened over our experience and not just you know, five years of experience. So we do try and do that, which is um, we, we think is important because, you know, 
I think, you know, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you give a man the, the way to fish, then uh, hopefully you can feed him for life. Learning some skills. Henry Jennings yeah. from Marcus today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Gemma. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. Love getting your questions. Please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.